I'm learning history in Cleveland, Tennessee. Welcome to the Curious Curators Podcast. Today we'll be discussing historical taboos, and they're pretty dark. Human sacrifice, cannibalism, and incest. Let's check it out. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Curious Curators. I'm Hope. And I'm Lindsay. And today we have a dark subject for you. Um, so I guess we should go ahead and say listener discretion is advised. If you don't like a little bit of darkness, maybe tune back in next week and we'll possibly be less dark. No, it won't. No, it probably won't. It never is, is it? But this week, we're going to talk to you about some historical taboos. And the ones we chose are a little bit dark. So, Yeah, and, and pretty universal as far as taboos go. Yeah, so th- most people would agree that these are bad. Yes. And they are kind of prohibited. It is against the law in a lot of places. Yes. Um, we'll probably say most places, but especially in the – for sure in the United States, it's against the law. These things are definitely illegal. We're not lawyers, but I think – We can assume A safely. safe bet. <laughs> We're safely assuming that these are probably illegal in the United States. <laughs> so if, if they're not and you know that, you can just let us know. Um, and we will we will admit that we're wrong if that's the case. We're never wrong. That's a joke as well. Yeah, um, that is a joke because we are wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong all the time. Okay, so what we're going to talk about today is, in no particular order, human sacrifice, cannibalism, and incest. So if these aren't illegal in the U.S. Let us know. Or don't advertise that. Do you want to give us a definition for what a taboo is? Yes. So a taboo is something that's like prohibited or restricted, um, but usually by social custom. Mm-hmm. Like we've said, some things, some things because they're laws, but also because of social customs. Like people do not like these things. People think that they're bad. Um, and really it doesn't have to be a, like the whole world that thinks this or anything. It can be a small group of people, right? Yeah. Um, and we, we just picked three of these. We yeah, picked three. we picked three. Maybe we'll do more in the future, yeah, do different. There's so many. Yes. We could have we could have picked 100. There's so many. And we just picked three that either interested us, stood out to us, or that we've seen like on TV or something recently. And are, are fairly universal. We didn't yeah. pick anything, at least for this, for today's podcast, that would have been niche essentially yeah they're these are all general consensus yeah i would say 99 percent of people would say these are bad yeah and that doesn't mean that no one will ever practice these that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen i think that any kind of taboo or like no-no type thing that you have someone does it somewhere um maybe not openly maybe not you know, proudly, sometimes it could be something that, like, a serial killer could practice cannibalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it could just be one of those things, or it could be something that you try really hard to hide from people because... Yeah, it's... In short, it's just because you break one of these taboos doesn't mean you're a bad person either. Right. Um, we'll find many instances of cannibalism is probably the prime example where it was done out of a need for survival rather than um, any sort of, yeah, any sort of, and, and, and knowing it's taboo. But then there are other cultures that don't find cannibalism to be so abhorrent and they actually find it to be a respectful way of honoring the right. individual. So, you know, it's, it's, tab, it's taboo in our society, but it doesn't necessarily make you a bad person if you practice these or break the taboo really practicing incest is not a phrase (laughs) (laughs) no well at least not one that i think anyone is like proud to i don't admit yeah um but i think that's a good that's a good starting place to talk about the incest that we've looked up here yeah absolutely (laughs) it sounds so bad doesn't it (laughs) So so uh, let's start with what incest is. So incest is having relations 
with your, your relations, yeah, with your relations within your family. Um, and I think that there's probably room for a couple jokes about different states or something that we'll just leave out. Well, yeah, because <laughs> it's usually southern states and we're in the south. Um, yeah, so we'll just leave those out, but know that they're there. Yeah, well, and, and the thing is, too, that incest is different to different cultures because in certain cultures, it's okay to cross-marry your cousin. Right. Where it doesn't be, where it is not a taboo because they're not considered part of your clan, essentially. And isn't it in... It's you can't marry a first or second cousin at this point, right? Is that, I I think that's like general. I think it's up to your second cousin. I've never been confused enough about it to look it up. I feel like I've looked that up for some reason, or someone's talked about it. But I've also like I don't have any attractive cousins, so I haven't looked that same. up. <laughs> I mean, unless you're counting myself. No, but I'm essentially, kidding. in some cultures, um, it's if if you're a female, then you're uncle's son on your father's side. There there are different definitions of what consists of family. Right. Um, you know, for example, too, in um, some Native American groups, you have to be a part of a clan, but you're a part of your mother's clan, and your uncle and your mother help raise you. So if you were to marry somebody from your father's clan, that would not be considered incest because they're not from your clan. They're not from your family, not your father. Right. But if you were to marry, for example, your father's sister's child, right. they're not part of your clan. Um, so there is sometimes a, kind of a blurred line. Yeah. To us, that's still your cousin, but to other groups, they're not related. Right. To that's you. not your cousin. And then I think that, especially like historically, this was much more prevalent. Oh, absolutely. Than, so like now today. First off, now it's so easy to find like your relatives today. There's so many DNA tests and all kinds of things like um, 23andMe, and all, you know yeah. you can find like all of your relatives so easily. So the I accidentally married my cousin doesn't trope really, doesn't play out. No, but like back you know 500 years ago, things were a little bit different, and also um, as we'll kind of see, there's a way to keep your blood pure to marry. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> Keep your blood, quote-unquote, pure. Yeah. Yeah, because now we know we have more information on genetics and the issues that inbreeding causes. Right, and there was actually a study done. It was called the Westermark Effect, and they said that children reared together, so this would be brother and sister, I think, um, would form a sentimental relationship that was non-erotic. So this is saying, like, that would just never happen if you were raised together. But I guess that also leads to the case of like, what if you have like a long lost sibling that you don't know about? Right. Um, which I think has probably that's I think that's happened before. Like recently, I feel like that's happened. I read a news story. Or something. Recently, I do know that a father and daughter got married. They were estranged. Um, the daughter did not necessarily know her father, but hmm. they yeah ended up married. That's interesting. I feel like now when things like that happen, like it's a new, it's like a story. It's like a new yes. story. Whereas, you know, before it was just part of it. it Especially just, with, within wealthy and royal families. Yeah. Like, cause I know we both looked up some kind of royal wealthy families. Yeah. I, at least all of my instances uh, that I wrote about were royals. I did look at a little bit of like, more modern culture to see how this played out. And I came up with three pretty modern instances. Um, they're not real instances. Yeah, that's because you wanted to talk about Riverdale. Yeah, okay. That's fair. <laughs> okay, so, but I also feel like this kind of normalizes that whole situation. All right. Um, so on Riverdale, the Blossom family, um, Penelope Blossom, the daughter, and Clifford Blossom were like the son. But you find out like later on in the series that Penelope was an orphan and she was adopted into the Blossom family. They wanted a red-haired child. They're all red-haired. Um, and raised with the intent of being his wife. So from a small child, she knew that she was going to marry her brother, essentially. Um, and I'm not even sure if that's legal. Um, if, like, you're adopted, does that not make you siblings? 
I don't know. This isn't the Curious Lawyers podcast. <laughs> I can't tell you that. Well, I don't know. that. To me, that seems strange. And then also um, the book Flowers in the Attic. Okay. The brother and sister are together in that. And it's like this – they even go as far as like being separated and blah, 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 but end up getting together because they're like true loves. And then I also think um, a more like probably well-known idea of this came from Game of Thrones, which you actually reminded me of. Um, even yeah. Even you've never watched the show. And I think but I'm still aware of yeah, the incest that happens within the show. And I do believe that on Game of Thrones, um, that is not a couple that you root for. Um, from the very beginning of that, like when you the first see them together, a child is literally pushed out of a tower window and you know like this is bad. And so it's true. a way to show an unhealthy yeah. and evil sort of yes a very aspect. unhealthy a very just toxic relationship um but they kind of got like a i wouldn't call it a happily ever after but whatever it's horribly toxic and the children born of that relationship the um one of like the main antagonists was joffrey their oldest son and see I, I know was who he is like the biggest tv villain ever so that was at least done to like tell you like this is bad maybe don't do it yeah but um, there are also, like, true instances of incest as well. But I just thought it was kind of interesting that, like, Riverdale is, like, a teen television show. And, I mean, Game of Thrones, I guess, is all ages. And I think Flowers of the Attic. I wouldn't call it all ages. That's everyone, more of an adult oh, show. Oh, everyone watches Game of Thrones. Yeah. Except for you. That's fair. All right, so let's get on to some historical instances. All right. Would you like to start? Sure. Um, the first one I wanted to talk about is the Habsburgs, mm. which were an Austrian royal family. Um, granted, they did marry into all kinds of different families within the European royal scene. So, one of the one I basically want to talk about the offspring, basically the result of incest, okay. which uh, is epitomized in Charles II of Spain. Um, he was called, and I'm going to screw this up because I don't do romance languages, El Hechizado, which means the bewitched. Hmm. What a name. His mother was Mariana of Austria, and she was the niece of her father, or of, of his father, uh, Philip IV hmm. of Spain. And his sister was married, also married to her own uncle. Uh, Leopold I of the Holy Roman Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, um, and Charles II had a lot of health issues. Um, don't say. <laughs> wow, um, he was considered depressed. By six, he had suffered measles, chickenpox, rubella, and smallpox. I mean, survived all of those. Um, and his mother insisted that he be carried around until he was eight years old. And he was – so he learned to walk when he was about eight. Um, and he was left uneducated because it was going to reduce the strain on his mind and body because he was so weak of mind and weak of body. He didn't learn to talk until he was four. And that was extremely uh, – that was – created more of a problem because of what was called and this is this is indicative of inbreeding in the family it was called the Habsburg lip mm -hmm. where your bottom jaw protruded so far forward and your bottom lip was enlarged um, his was so bad and his tongue was swollen as well that he had a lot of difficulty eating and talking um, and this was something that was he had the most pronounced one but it went around in their family and of course it didn't get bred out. Right. It got worse and worse. It got worse and worse. Um, he, was, he was said to be so ugly he would cause fear, according to a French ambassador in 1679. That's actually so sad. Um, I feel for this guy. Yeah. He, uh, he might have also had hydrocephalus, which is water in the brain, um, or it's an accumulation of brain and spinal, spinal fluid in the okay. brain. Um, which was the result of inbreeding, um, and it causes headaches, double vision, poor balance, incontinence, personality changes, mental impairment, seizures, vomiting, sleepiness, downward-pointing eyes, <laughs> among other things. Um, but there were some really great 
quotes about him. Um, and during his autopsy, because he died of chronic kidney failure, because he had chronic kidney problems at the age of 35, um, in his autopsy, he also didn't have any children, by the way. I okay. think that should be fair enough. He was infertile. Um, his autopsy apparently did not contain a single drop of blood. And this is, this is quotes from the autopsy report. Did not contain a single drop of blood. His heart was the size of a peppercorn. His lungs corroded. His intestines rotten and gangrenous. He had a single testicle, black as coal, and his head was full of water. So that's where they think the hydrocephalus came from. He might have had a pituitary gland issue, which caused his uh, immature body as well. He didn't quite mature at the same rate as other people did. Um, And one of my favorite quotes regarding this guy is he was short, lame, epileptic, senile, and completely bald before 35, repeatedly baffling Christendom by continuing to live. Jesus, I feel so bad for this poor guy. He was, yeah, he was considered, the nickname The Bewitched came from his personality and these ailments that plagued him. Um, He was just... (laughs) Niece and uncle married, and this this child was the result of a long line of incest, and it just... If there was ever a case against incest, this is it. Charles II of Spain. That's... It's so sad, too. Like, he had stood no chance. Like... No, absolutely not. And his mother exacerbated it by babying him because she didn't want to cause him extra stress. Oh, that's terrible. I mean, and then you have to think, like, she was probably a product of the same. And Yes, she so was as well. So but on. apparently his sister was not unattractive. She didn't have the Habsburg lip. Um, I guess maybe sometimes it skips a bit. Well, I mean, it's you're playing genetic roulette yeah, with incest. Yeah, it's the luck of the draw at yeah. that point. Well, let's see. I have one. Um, and this is not – there's no, like, straight horror stories from them. But I think that it ended up being a relatively famous case um, of incest or possible incest. Okay. So we're going to talk about the Borgia family. No horrors came from them. And if you know anything about the Borgias, you will know that the father, Rodrigo, was Pope Alexander VI. And he was literally a pope and had a bunch of children. So Didn't he basically pay his way to be the pope? Yeah, pretty much. Um, his, like, uncle was the pope and had him, like, brought in. And then there was kind of, like, a he bribed a lot of people because, you know, the cardinals are vote. Yes. Like, you vote yeah. on the pope out of, like, a little group. And he ended up winning. And the Borgias weren't really well-liked in Italy. Um, they called him the Spanish pope. Um, mm-hmm. The Borgia family was from Spain. And of his children, he had the oldest Giovanni or Juan, who was later murdered, probably by another of his children. Then he had Cesare, who was um, a cardinal and a soldier, and then was married and wasn't really a cardinal anymore. And it just seems like a nice convoluted life that he led. And then their daughter, Lucrezia, who was kind of used for political alliances a lot, um, as I think was quite common um, for girls. And then he had a younger son, Giovanni. I thought he was Joffrey. He was Joffrey. I wrote Giovanni again. (laughs) My notes today are so bad. If he's Italian, his name is Giovanni. Yeah, he's probably (laughs) Joffrey. So my notes today are really bad. I have no idea what I was doing when I was writing any of these. Um, So I will say for some of them, like, Lucrezia was meant to be quite beautiful, and people seemed to really enjoy her, like her. They thought she was, like, nice, I guess. And Cesare was... The most handsome man in Italy, but he also had syphilis from about age 20. So those things may or may not be related. Who knows? We also found out that he was the possible model for an image of Jesus, which is interesting. So for the image of Jesus that is like white with brown hair. Yeah. In the the little beard. Yeah. With like a little... um, Well-trimmed... Goatee. Yeah, so that is literally based on Cesare Borgia. Rodrigo paid people to make his son Jesus. Um, But the whole thing kind of came about... So I had always heard of the rumors of Lucrezia and Cesare having an affair. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I was doing this research, apparently the same was said for herself and her father. 
which I'd never heard before, but that's like crazy. I've only heard of her in Cesare. Well, so I said she was married to Giovanni Sforza. Sforza? Yeah, Sforza. Um, and they decided that wasn't an advantageous marriage anymore. So he, Rodrigo, the Pope, wanted to have this marriage annulled. And Giovanni was like, nah. And they were like, no, we're going to do this because they said the marriage was never consummated. Um, and the reason that Sforza gives for them wanting to annul this marriage is because the Pope wanted her for himself. So that sparked, um, that kind of sparked an incest rumor there. But if you know much about the family, she was remarried. Right. So like she was actually remarried. And then there was the 1498 debacle where there was a child born into the household, but they didn't know whose child it was. Like no one on the outside. So he was called Giovanni. We were literally all called Giovanni at this point. In my notes, everyone's named Giovanni. <laughs> um, but they also called him the Infants Romanus, which means the Roman child. And there were two papal bulls issued about this child. In, wow. In that's intense if you've got a papal bull issued about you. Two of them. <laughs> two of them. And they're very contradictory. So okay. the first says that this was the child of Cesare from an affair before he was married. Then the second one negates the first one and says that he's actually the child of the Pope. But... Well, who was the mother? No one knows. Rumor has it that the mother was Lucrezia and the child was Cesare's and this was a cover-up. So I think a lot of this is they're kind of saying like, well, they were in love. And I did find a quote. um, Sarah Bradford wrote a book about Lucrezia Borgia called Life, Love, and Death in Renaissance Italy. And she said, Cesare was the evil genius of Lucrezia's life. Their love and loyalty to each other was such that he, like his father, would be accused of incest with her, even that his obsessive love for her led him to commit murder. Um, accusations of incest at the time had to be vu- have to be viewed with a degree of skepticism. Um, sexual innuendo was a favorite ingredient of Italian gossip. Well, that even went back to Rome, which we'll see yes, in another podcast. We will. But I just think it's really interesting that, like, anything that you read about the two of them, you're like, he loved her so much. He was literally ready to kill people for her. And you're like, yeah, they're just, like, I don't I don't have siblings like that, so maybe that's normal. I don't know. Would you like to just go kill people for your sister? No. <laughs> so. I would like to kill her sometimes, but. Fair. Yeah, so maybe it's, um, so that's kind of a you get to pick yourself. They say that there's no like real um proof but there's no real proof that there wasn't either so it's kind of up in the air but i think in a lot of modern day adaptations of the borgias there's books there's movies there's television shows it's always at least alluded to yeah um so i think that that's really interesting because that's like quite before i even watched a show about the borgias i knew about that yeah i knew about that too and i haven't seen the show so This podcast is a production of the Alderman Group and the Museum Center at Five Points. Be sure to check out all our upcoming events on our website at museumcenter.org. That's museumcenter.org. Let's continue with the show. I just thought that was kind of an interesting one. Yeah, I did another one on kind of the product of incest. And both of these individuals are are more famous, or at least especially the one I'm about to talk about is way more famous than... uh, than his parents, and that is Tutankhamun, or King Tut. Uh, His father was the pharaoh Akhenaten, and his mother is his father's sister, and this was a pharaonic tradition. And that even went into the Ptolemaic dynasty when uh, you had Greek and later Rome in charge of Egypt. They actually continued this tradition. Cleopatra, uh, yes, was... Married to her brother at one point. Um, And they they believe that they found the mother. Um, It's a mummy called the Younger Lady. She was murdered or killed in an accident between 25 and 30 years old. She died of blunt force trauma to the side of her face. Um, She appears to have an overbite and scoliosis. Um, But scoliosis 
could have resulted from mummification. I don't know how that works, but that's what it said. Oh, I guess because um, I think it like when your body dries, it'll probably pull yeah. your bones. Yeah. Um, and they also found a relative that they believe to be Akhenaten um, to be Tut's father. Um, and basically he had long limbs, an elongated skull, um, high cheekbones, a cleft palate, and an impacted wisdom tooth. Um, and depictions of Akhenaten, curiously enough, show him with broad hips, thick thighs, thin arms, and a long, thin face, and very feminine yeah. features, um, and a sagging stomach. And it's just really interesting because they usually had idealized impressions of these emperors, but that's actually within reconstructions of King Tut himself. He looks a lot like that. Yeah. Um, he does have very broad hips and a more feminine physique. Um, and that was the depictions of Akhenaten. Um, but the mummy of King Tut had very large front incisors, an overbite, narrow waist, round hips. He had a cleft palate. He had scoliosis. Um, his right foot was flat um, with missing toes, which was a birth defect. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't lose them later. Um, his left foot was clubbed, which means your foot rotates inward and you have to kind of walk on the side of your foot. Um, so he had to walk with a cane. He also had bone necrosis of the second and third metatarsals um, and had malaria several times in his life. And shortly before he died, he had a compound fracture in his left leg, the clubbed foot. Um, so this guy was not in good health. No. Um, he was a very young king. He was a boy king. Um, and he likely died of a case of malaria Around the same time, his left leg was fractured um, and also was compounded by several worsening genetic conditions that he had. So he um, probably wouldn't have lived that long. Obviously, anyway. he didn't, yeah. Well, I mean, without the malaria. the malaria, yeah. Yeah, um, but he did actually marry his sister, uh, um, Ankh Sunamun, and they had together they had two daughters, but both had spinal deformis- deformities. One died... Um, at age five to six months throughout the pregnancy, so um, fetal, I guess. It was still a fetus when it died. And the other died either at full term or shortly after birth. Um, His children did not live either, and it's believed to be likely a cause of genetic defects. So that's what happens when brothers and sisters marry. Yeah, that's just not a good... Thing. It's a honestly, it's a miracle that those dynasties didn't die off faster than they did. Yeah, um, it's a miracle that they lasted as long as they did. And like, who knows what would have happened? Like, if Cleopatra had just stayed married to her brother, like, yeah, exactly. Because um, well, that was Mark that Anthony, was new blood, though. Yeah. Well, and marrying Mark Antony was probably the best thing. That, yeah. Honestly, because it got you out of that. Like, if their children had you know lived and things hadn't gone the way that they went, so yeah. Let's just rewrite a little bit of history to take all the incest out, apparently. But yeah, guys, that's why incest is bad. Yeah. I mean, at worst, really awful rumors. Or at best, really awful rumors. At worst, all of that. Genetic condition, deadly genetic conditions. Yeah. A ripe old age of like 18. Yeah, exactly. the height of your life. Well, should we move on to a new topic? Absolutely. All right. You want to do a little bit of human sacrifice or cannibalism? Your choice. All right. Start us off. All right. Well, why don't we talk about human sacrifice? I think it's pretty self-explanatory, honestly. Um, It's the act of killing humans in a sacrifice. Yeah, for a ritual (laughs) reason. Yeah, just uh, as usual. A religious or spiritual reason, usually. But there's usually a ritual reason behind it. Sometimes it's like to appease the gods, to make up for something that you've done. Yeah. Repentance. Yeah. And, or... Because you need that blessing, I guess. Yeah. Or to, it's continued blessings. Um, or sometimes, you know, there was that... Where was it that um, all of the servants were killed as well to serve you in your next life? Was that in Egypt? Yeah, there were there were a couple of places, I believe, that did that. Yeah. Didn't Vikings um, do something similar? Yeah. In China, in Imperial China, like, the wives would be killed as well, or the concubines, at least. Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of human sacrifice? It's, yeah. 
And I think it pretty much, I mean, I think there's probably some cases that we think of like normally, but it took place everywhere. Yeah. It wasn't like it just happened in one or two places. Like human sacrifice took place everywhere for a fair amount of time. Mm-hmm. So. Is that the cue for me to read my example? Well, I was thinking, but yeah, you go first. Okay. So I basically did the Aztecs. I was going to do all of Mesoamerica, but that's a pretty expansive topic. Um, and the Aztecs were pretty prolific with right. their uh, human sacrifice. And the human sacrifices were often captives of war, um, of enemies, or they were slaves. And they were basically something called Ishiptla, which is deity impersonators. So these victims went through rituals that could take up to a year to prepare them to turn them into a representative of a certain deity. And there were actually criteria for what deity. So Tezcatlipoca had, you know, you couldn't have any physical flaws or marks. You had to be a warrior who was in good condition. So there were actually um, certain prerequisites to become a human sacrifice. And near the end of your life, you were heaped with luxury, Um, you know, women, whatever food you wanted. It was, you could have anything you wanted. Um, so you were, you were basically treated as a god up until your final days. And what they would do is they would take you to the top of the pyramid temple. Um, one priest would grab each of your limbs and you would be put on the stone altar and you would be held essentially spread eagle almost. Um, when the other one gets a sacrificial knife from the sacred fire mm-hmm. and basically cut you open while you were still alive um, and then reach into your rib cage and pull out your heart, mm, um, so nice which was then painless. tossed into that fire. And thrown, your body was thrown down the temple steps. And at the bottom, a priest would cut off the victim's head and put it on a skull rack. Mm. And um, this actually, there actually was a little bit of cannibalism involved. Mm-hmm. Um, the person who was the sponsor or the captor, so essentially the person who captured this prisoner of war and brought them, that family got to partake in the flesh of this dead body. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of their honor, and it wasn't done as a big source of protein. It was more of a ritual right. um, way to honor that dead. Um, so uh, they each had their own wishes for what was going to be done. For example, Tlaloc, which was the rain god, he only wanted children um, because their lives were the most precious Hmm. Um, because it was essentially they had so much more to live. They had so much more potential. They were, um, so they were the most precious and they were willing to do that because he was the rain god and in some ways was one of the most important deities. Um, But there was another one, which is the cult of Shipe Totec, which had a gladiator sacrifice and the victim was tied to a large stone and forced to fight a fully armed Mexica warrior which is an Aztec warrior and he was armed the victim was armed with a feather a or feather. a sword with the blade replaced with a feather so that was a real fight then wasn't it yeah and there was another sacrifice very similar um in that sorry it was you know, you have no chance with the arrow sacrifice. You were put spread eagle on a wooden frame and shot with full of arrows. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And so that your blood uh, dripped onto the ground. So this was actually done a lot. I mean a lot. And it was uh, part of a religious significance. But the other side of it is that this, because the Aztecs were way more prolific than any other culture, and a lot of people asked why. And yes, religion was extremely important to them, but it was to the previous people as well. Right. The thing here is they used it as propaganda, and it was it was called propaganda by terror to I make people that. terrified of them. And sometimes they would invite enemy rulers and chiefs over, and they would that's when they would sacrifice their own that chief's own people that they'd captured, mm-hmm. just to show them that this is what we can do. And then send them home to spread the message. Yeah, essentially. So it was it was a way to terrorize yeah. and to create fear oh, of the I Aztec never Empire. About that. That's yeah. wow. I mean, that's because it was it was a huge public spectacle. Yeah, I mean, it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, like, but and clearly, it's enduring. It worked. Yeah, 
But people, like, I mean, if you say, what do you know of the Aztecs? One of the things you're most likely sacrifice. to hear is human sacrifice. That's wild. I never thought about that. Yep. Well, I was interested in, um, you know, I have a thing for Greek mythology. and <laughs> So I was kind of interested in all of that. You know, they were like, the Greeks were kind of wild. They were like sacrificing people and they were like doing whatever. And they were interacting with the gods and all this stuff all mm-hmm. the time. Um, so I was like, well, how did they deal with human sacrifice? Because let's not pretend that it didn't happen. So the first um, kind of thing I came up to was Agamemnon. If you remember the story of the Greeks sailing to Troy, mm-hmm. um, for a while, the Greeks couldn't sail. Their ships wouldn't sail. The wind was not blowing in the right direction. And that is because Agamemnon, um, I'm just like thinking of Agamemnon in the movie Troy, and I'm like, ugh, Agamemnon. So Agamemnon <laughs> went into like the same. I love that movie as well. Um, so he went into the sacred grove of the goddess Artemis, and he killed a deer. Because apparently, while he is able to unite an entire country, he's not always that bright. So he killed a deer in her sacred grove. And none of the ships would sail. The wind wouldn't blow. They were stuck. They couldn't go to Troy. They couldn't get Menelaus' wife back. Like, such a struggle for them. So he was told, um, sources of how he was told vary, but his daughter, Iphigenia, Mm -hmm. correct me, I don't know. um, He was told that he had to sacrifice her. And at first he was like, no. And then he was like, okay, you're right. Let's do it. So he called her to um, the port that they were at with the promise of a marriage to Achilles. Oh, wow. Yes, the greatest of warriors. Um, (laughs) Brad Pitt, wow. (laughs) Yes. So she comes and... Some people say her mother was, like, chatting with Achilles and was like, oh, we're so excited for the wedding. And he was like, what wedding? Oh, no. Because he didn't know. So in some of the versions of this myth, because there's a ton, Achilles made it his mission to make sure that this girl lived. Okay. And that's kind of one of the reasons he's always so upset with Agamemnon is because of this. Okay. Um, But now in some versions, she isn't actually sacrificed. But... In most versions, she goes willingly to her sacrifice because she knows that there's no other way to do it. Okay. So he kills her, and they set sail to Troy. So he sacrificed his own daughter in order to be able to, you know, go fight in a war. And I'm like, could you have not walked to another port, Agamemnon? But that's fine. And there's also quite a few stories um, of men sacrificing their sons to see if the gods are actually all-knowing. Okay. So they would kill them and cook them and invite the gods to a feast to see if the gods knew that this was human meat. What? All right. Like, how twisted are you that you're like, let's play a game? (laughs) (laughs) So in both cases that I'm looking at, so I have like Lycion and Tantalus. I always pick names that I can't say. Um, in both of these cases, Zeus knew that this had happened, and he was not happy. With the case of Tantalus's son, Pelops, um, the only god to accidentally partake in this meal was Demeter, and that's because she was very distraught because Persephone had been taken to the oh, okay. world. Um, so she had a bite of his shoulder accidentally. But in both of these cases, the fathers were punished. Um, they were both sent to Tartarus, and Tantalus's punishment, um, I think we know a little bit about like Tartarus punishments, yeah. Sisyphus and the rock. Um, so Tantalus was made to stand in a pool of water with low-hanging fruit trees above him, and every time he would reach up to grab a piece of fruit, it would retract away from him, and every time he would bend down to drink the water, it would go down so he couldn't reach it. And this happened to him for all eternity. Okay. And the gods brought the children back. Okay. In both versions. Um, and Pelops, whose shoulder had been eaten, was given a marble shoulder. Oh. To um, replace that. So I think that that's interesting that in so many instances we see these Greek gods as just being like wild and do whatever they want. But like they didn't want you to sacrifice your child. <laughs> Except for... Except for Artemis, she wanted you to sacrifice your child. Okay, but yeah. the others didn't want you 
to sacrifice your child for no reason as a test. Yeah. So I kind of thought, I found that to be like very interesting. That well, that, that seems was, blasphemous too. I'm going to test whether you're a god or not. Right. Test whether you can see that this is happening. And I was like, yeah. who even thinks like that? Well, I mean, apparently someone, but. So I do have one more about the Vestal Virgins. Do you have right. any more um, human sacrifices? No, I'm good. Okay, so this one sort of tied into another podcast that we're doing, but I thought it was interesting. So in Rome, there was a temple. Of course there was a temple. And this was a temple to Vesta. She was the goddess of the hearth and home. And the people who attended Vesta's temple were called the Vestal Virgins. You served a 30-year sentence, or sentence i mean i would call it a sentence honestly you're picked as a small child usually between six and ten years old and you go and you're like a student a priestess type person and then a teacher and then you're free to like go and get married or do whatever it was apparently a very high honor to marry a vestal virgin at the end but these vows of celibacy were very serious you could not break them if you broke these vows of celibacy rome could fall it was very intense. Um, so their job was basically to keep the sacred fires burning. They kept people's wills, um, like important people, not just like city people, like Caesar and stuff. They kept important people's wills. And they made um, this flower that you sprinkled on sacrifices to the gods. And it was like a strange thing. So you could not spill the blood of a vestal. And also you could not bury anyone in the city of Rome. So... Um, if you are found to have broken your vows of celibacy, I'm not sure how they would find out unless you told, but I, I don't know. So if you are found to have broken these vows. Or if you were pregnant, that would be a pretty good indicator. Well, yeah, um, which did happen in one case. Um, but apparently this pro- this happened like less than 20 times over the entire course of the Vestal Virgin life as a thing. Um, but they would give you a little bit of food and a little bit of water and wine, and you would willingly walk into this underground room where they would lock you in, and you would essentially be buried alive. But not actually, because you couldn't bury people in the city of Rome, but um, you doing this would appease the goddess after you had offended her mortally. So it was a way to bring favor back to the city. But... It kind of seemed to happen in times of upheaval of some mm-hmm. sort. So they probably were, finger pointing saying oh, this upheaval is happening and it's your fault. Somebody must have broken their vow of chastity. Yes, they were scapegoats. So I just You know, those ancient people were like wild out sometimes. They were like, look, this is what we're going to do. But yeah, I thought that was just a fun little tidbit of information. I guess we can move into our last one. Yeah. Cannibalism. Cannibalism. Um, and for those of you that don't know, cannibalism is eating people. Eating someone of your own species, because rats can be cannibals if they eat other rats. Right. In this case, though, people eating people. People eating people. Would you like to start? Sure. Um, so I focused my cannibalism on the people of uh, certain tribes in Papua New Guinea. Um, so, you know, there are singular instances of cannibalism out there, but I wanted to do one that was entirely cultural. Okay. Um, and there, there, are a few, uh, there are a few different tribes there that do it. It's not all tribes. Uh, one of them is the Koro Kauai people. Um, they murder and eat um, kakua, which are witches. Okay. Um, or basically people suspected of being witches. Um, and it was basically a part of their justice system. Hmm. So... When someone would die, it is possible that they were um, they died of supernatural causes. Okay. So, in in one example that I was I was watching a documentary, and in one example, someone's I believe it was his cousin had gotten really ill and said that a witch had done this to him and named which person was the witch. Mm. And it could be a man or a woman. It wasn't. Yeah. Uh, gendered. So this guy went and killed the witch and ate him. Okay. Um, the aggrieved family, and there there are actually professional witch hunters, essentially, um, people who do that as a living um, or as their primary, primary function. Um, but the aggrieved family gets the head, so they get to eat the brains of the witch who killed their... Um, 
their loved one. Okay. Um, but the killer gets to keep the skull afterwards, sort of as a prize for doing okay. so. Um, and they're actually considered extremely fearsome, um, extremely violent to outsiders. Other tribes in the area are scared of them. So I, I feel like this might be a propaganda of terror as well, um, having that sub-function instead of just being this is part of the justice, justice system is that we kill and eat you. And um, that, that is one way that is a more violent form of cannibalism. But there was another one called the 4A people. And this was actually a more benevolent form of cannibalism. Basically, they would eat the members of their own tribe after they died. It seemed, um, it seemed inhuman to leave them out mm. um, to deteriorate and decompose. It seemed disrespectful. Um, and they actually, the quote was, it was much better that the body was eaten by people who loved the deceased than by worms and insects. So oh, that's kind of sad, isn't it? Burying them or leaving them out to be consumed by these creatures, it seemed like it was better for them to eat them. Um, and the women ate the brains um, because they believed that the dangerous spirit in the dead bodies were more easily tamed by women and children. So women would eat the brains and then pass some of the matter off to their children as snacks. But once you became a man, you couldn't eat it because okay. um, you wouldn't be strong enough to fight off that, um, that dangerous spirit in the body. The issue was um, this actually created um, – this actually – a disease came from this that was mm. transmittable because through the brain matter, and it was called Kuru. Um, and it was actually a pandemic uh, amongst the people. Uh, it was a neurodegenerative disease. I have to really focus on my notes here because these are a lot of words I don't understand. <laughs> um, and it was transferred by eating the remains of the dead. Um, and the symptoms were tremors, loss of coordination, emotional instability, depression, uncontrollable laughter, difficulty swallowing, incontinence, loss of speech. Um, they eventually became unresponsive and had chronic ulcerated wounds. Um, but throughout all of this, they maintained their consciousness. So they could no longer function or move by the end of it. And it could take like 10 years for it to oh go gosh. through its entire life cycle. Um, but at the end, they're still conscious and aware of what's going on around them, but they aren't able to do anything. Oh, that's horrible. Um, and it's uh, – it, it was basically um, something that happened to them. They didn't know what it was, but it eventually stopped around the 1950s and the 1960s as they came more into contact with the outside world and did less of this funerary practice. Um, and women were more likely to have kuru because they ate the brains. Right. And so were children as well. Um, and so this was just – this is one of the reasons that cannibalism is a bad thing. Yeah. Because um, they were really doing it, I think, for good reasons. They believed that they – They believed they were doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if that's – in your brain, those are the two options. Your relative gets eaten by insects and worms or you eat them yourself. Right. That seems like more of a way to honor them and show them you love them. Right. Um, oh, that's sad. I mean, like, it's always just kind of like, oh, but it's really sad when they really think that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. That's sad. So, and and they're the ones who ended up with this disease, Kuru, which means like shaking or trembling in that language. That sounds horrible. Yeah. That sounds absolutely horrible. All right. So I had some instances with like just one person. Um, the first one was um, James Sligo Jameson. So you've heard of Jameson Whiskey. This is yes. the heir to the Jameson Whiskey fortune distillery business, however you want to do that. So he went on some trips to Africa, and this was about 1887-1888. They were, like, on the Congo River, and he was kind of chatting with this local chief, as you do, and they started talking about cannibalism, and he offered this man six white handkerchiefs to see a girl killed and eaten, or to see a person. Some accounts say that he actually purchased a slave girl, for this specific reason. Some say that the girl was just brought out. And he wanted to sketch this. Um, he was a sketcher, sketch, sketch artist. I'm not, I don't know. The I think those are usually for police. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe so. So sketch he liked artist. to sketch and also do watercolors. So that was kind of his goal. So these local men brought out this girl, tied her to a tree, killed her, cut her up, and I assume ate her. Was this a tribe that normally practiced cannibalism, or I did he just... I think this was a tribe um, that normally practiced cannibalism, and that's why he was, like, having a chat with the chief about it. 
Okay. But he said that, you know, he didn't mean for that to happen. He thought it was a joke, but he sketched it. So, like, once she died, he started sketching it, and then he turned these sketches into a series of watercolors, which you can find on the internet. I'm sorry, but if it was a joke, wouldn't you stop it at some point yeah. before it got killed? Wouldn't you stop it before it happened? You and see them bring out a girl, they attempt Tie her to a tree. And they're going to kill her. Stab I mean, her twice. And yeah. And you don't stop it there? Yeah, you don't, you don't say anything, and then you're like, well, might as well draw it since it's already happening right in front of me. Um, this, so, he had a Sudanese translator, um, and apparently what the translator said that he said is, this is a present from a white man who wishes to see her eaten. But he didn't mean it, it was a joke. It was a joke. And he turned these Mm -hmm. into this series of six watercolors, which you can find online, and it, of course, got back to England, and people were kind of appalled. Well, yeah. And he was never able to clear his name. That's why he backtracked. Yeah, of course. Because he didn't say it wasn't, like, he didn't say it wasn't serious. Like, when he was there, he said it later, when everyone found out. But he ended up dying pretty soon after this. I didn't really see what he died of. I didn't really care. Because I was like, you're a terrible person. (laughs) But that was, um, he personally didn't, well, as far as we know, we have no idea, but he personally didn't partake in this, but he paid to have it done in front of him so he could witness it, which is absolutely disgusting. Yeah. And then the other one that I looked up happened a few years earlier in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. We all know this story, maybe. <laughs> so it is the story of the Donner Party. Mm-hmm. Um, the Donner Party were a group of pioneers, I guess. At, would you call them pioneers? Yeah, you'd call them pioneers. And they were going to go to California. And they started... So they were kind of doomed. They started late. And then they wanted to take this cutoff called the Hastings Cutoff. The Hastings Cutoff was supposed to be faster. It was supposed to be safer. There was supposed to be accessible water. And it was just supposed to be so easy. You could just pop right over to California, right through the mountains, and there you were in California before winter living your dream and we all know what happens when things are going to be easy right (laughs) they're not so um some people call this the donner reed party it was the two main families at the beginning were the donners and the reeds mr reed killed someone so they exiled him so he left his family behind and i think that is just going to become important later okay so they are going up this mountain pass in the sierra nevadas and it starts to snow and it continues to snow So about 60 people set up a winter camp. Um, It is the Donner family who are camping kind of alone by a creek called Alder Creek. It's a little bit on the bottom of a hill. And then a little bit up up the hill is going to be the Breen family, the Graves family, the Reed family, and the Murphy family. And they all have cabins. Okay. Um, I guess there were already some cabins there. And the Donners have two tents. And I was like, I don't know why. It never said why they stayed down the hill. As well, I don't know if they just were kind of stuck up and they didn't want to be around anyone or what. I don't know if it was just more convenient, if maybe they couldn't make it up the hill with, like, their equipment. I don't know. So it's rain or it's snowing. The snow is building up and they're, like, trapped. So they decide at first, hey, we're going to send out a rescue party. Let's do this. This party is now called the Forlorn Hope. 17 people set out to try to cross the mountain on foot and snowshoes to find food. Eight of them died. So clearly it worked out well for them. And this group is one of the ones that at first was like, someone should die to feed the rest of us because they were literally stuck in the snow in a blizzard. Um, Eventually someone ended up dying. There was a whole thing where they were going to draw straws, um, but eventually someone died and they were able to eat them. And then eventually they ran into um, a tribe of Native Americans. I think it's pronounced like Miwok. and they helped them but at first apparently when these people came into their camp they were terrified of them they looked so bad they were so like raggedy and scraggly Um, but they helped them they gave them acorns grass and pine nuts to eat and then eventually led them onto a smaller farming community where they were able to get help so thank you um okay then we go back up to this camp at truck this 
it's called like Truckee Lake, but it would later be called Donner Lake. That's what it's called now. And this okay. is like the Donner Family Park, National Park now. So throughout this whole thing, there were three more rescue attempts. First, Mr. Reed tried to rescue his family because he made it down and found out they were stuck, but he wasn't able to get up there. So then the first, so they got stuck in like October. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to snow until November. Okay. So they got stuck in October. The first relief came February 18th. And 23 people were rescued, and 21 were left behind. Of the three that were, or of the 23 that were rescued, three died on the way back, but the rest of them made it. And at this point, they are eating, like, rotten ox hides that are, they're using as, like, a roof, and they're boiling, like, bones to make a broth, and they're just disintegrating in their mouth. They've been cooked so much, they have no food. So the second relief came in March, on March 1st. So about 10 days later... I'm not sure if this is a leap year. So 10 days later, no one at Truckee Lake had died during this gap. So up on the cabins, they were hungry and everything, but they were okay. And the Alder Creek group was struggling a little bit more. They were apparently already practicing cannibalism at this time. Um, Jacob Donner had died, and so had three others. They're like Teamsters, and they were eating them down there. So they rescued 17 people the second time. Only three adults. The other 14 were children. Again, three people died on the way. And this left about 10 people, five at Truckee Lake, five down at Alder Creek. And they came with a third relief on the 14th of March, and five people were brought out. And then they brought a salvage party. And I kind of feel like the salvage party is like, Ugh. So they went up. They were going to get the Donner's belongings. All the Donner children were orphaned. Okay. Um, one of the Donners was down and he had like cut his hand and it was like getting more and more infected. So he couldn't travel, I guess. And his wife was like, I'm going to stay with him. They sent their children on. Well, when they got down there, Alder Creek, Mr. Donner was laying there and he had just died, but no one else was there. Like his wife was gone, everything. And they go up to the cabins and there's only one man there, Louis Keysburg. And... He said, like, oh, Mrs. Donner just wandered off into the snow the other night, and Mrs. Murphy, I think, was left, but she was dead, and he was just eating people. Like, he was just living off of human meat at that point. Um, they threatened to lynch him, but they ended up not doing that. So eventually, pretty much everyone has been removed from this camp, and I think this is a pretty well-known story. Like, a lot of people know about it, but they would all go on to talk about it, and later, some of the children, especially from the Donner camp, the children that were very young, did remember this cannibalism. And, you know, they were saying, like, it was our parents were giving it to us so we would survive, um, which they did. And then some of the members were kind of vulgar about it and were saying, like, yeah, we did this, like, we ate, whatever. But then as time went on and they all got older and everything, all mention of it left like no one would talk about it after that so maybe as they grew up it was something they just wanted to forget about or maybe some things were exaggerated but yeah this was kind of a story this was survival they didn't really have if they didn't do that they would have all died they didn't have really any food but it's still I think a very dark story mm -hmm. um, not really a story that has a happy ending even though they all got even though quite a few people got rescued it's still very dark very sad but I think that's kind of one of those things that's cannibalism because you don't have a choice. Right. Um, and I think that that's happened a few other times as well in recent memory um, where it's sometimes people say, like, do it. I think there was the flight in the mountains that mm -hmm. crashed. That was a similar situation. They were starving. But, yeah. Um, I don't feel like a lot of people today look at the Donner party or anything and are like oh my god can you believe they did that it's more of I just think a sad story I think yeah. that people feel bad for them um because of what happened which I understand that's a horrible thing but a little bit of a different take on it I guess but do you have anything else you'd like to add to our taboos today no I think that's the end all right well thanks for listening guys and we'll see you next week with like we said maybe a slightly less dark version of history but probably uh, not. i doubt it <laughs> have a good week guys thank you bye be sure to join us next time as we talk all things history and tell the story of the echoey region i'm learning history in cleveland tennessee 
Learning history. 